1: Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research arm of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and the law. I'm Justin Teresi, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, covering litigation and policy affecting consumer and industrial
2: goods companies. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, covering U.S. policy, including Washington developments in regards to marijuana. Today's podcast, which
1: we're recording on February 8th, 2024, is focused on an issue that's been hard to ignore for the past decade, and that is the growing legalization of marijuana nationwide at the state level. As every state in the the union, except for four now, has legalized marijuana in some way, whether it be full adult recreational use medicinal use, or the use of CBD, the marijuana plant compound has purported pain and sleep remedies but doesn't necessarily get you high, federal law continues to completely outlaw marijuana as a Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substances Act, or CSA. As we'll discuss, this paradox between state and federal law has created a host of problems for folks involved in the legal, entirely intrastate marijuana business businesses. What are these problems, and what are the chances that landscape, whether it's through litigation efforts or policy changes out of Washington, D.C., is about to change? Joining us today to help answer some of those questions is Josh Schiller, partner at Boies, Schiller & Flexner LLP, who's bringing a challenge to the CSA's prohibition of the marijuana trade. Josh is a seasoned litigator who needs no introduction in many circles, having vast experience with varied issues, and important here constitutional law. I think it's fair to say that Boy Schiller doesn't take cases with an intent to lose, and the same can be said for Josh. Josh's constitutional experience includes important work on two issues near and dear to me, both with the successful overturning of Proposition 8 in California, granting all persons there the right to marry who they choose, and in 2015, Josh represented two individuals who faced discrimination by the Boy Scouts of America, which at the time disallowed the employment of any openly gay adults. That policy was eventually removed as a result of that litigation. Welcome to Votes and Verdicts, Josh. We're really thrilled to have you here today.
0: Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's not often we have somebody of your of your great constitutional caliber on the show, and we're just so thrilled to dive into this issue today with you. That's you know growing and important nationwide. But before we dive too too far into the nuts and bolts of the litigation itself. Could you give us a little bit of background on the CSA and how it still criminalizes marijuana? I think many listeners out there might be wondering how the law has changed with the CSA as states have begun legalizing the trade.
0: Sure, so the, the CSA is known as the Controlled Substances Act, um, which allows for the FDA to designate certain drugs uh, in different categories, Schedule One through Schedule Five, And depending upon the category that it's designated, um, there are different, uh, regulations that apply, um, everyone knows schedule one. Most people don't really know what the other schedules apply to, uh, including myself, but schedule one, <laughs> um, is, is illicit narcotics is how it's usually referred to. Um, and, and some of those drugs involve cocaine, um, and, um, uh, you know, drugs like fentanyl, and of course, marijuana.
1: Right. So it, it seems like in many ways with marijuana being in that bucket of schedule one, the, the CSA seems in some ways, at least, to be a kind of an analog relic in what we might call a digital world here, if that makes sense.
0: Certainly in the way it's applied to marijuana. And, um, you know, a lot of people have read recently a letter that came out that was written in August by the, the Department of uh, Human and Health Services talking about why um, as it's applied to marijuana, and designated as a Schedule One drug, it wasn't appropriate because marijuana, um, in that letter that the government wrote at the direction of the Biden administration, and and who's ordered the the government to re-examine uh, the, the scheduling, as they call it, of marijuana, they pointed out that it has health benefits that are widely known and and historically known, um, and that it it is you know, after scientific study, um, it it has less addictive um, qualities than many of the other, if not all of the other drugs that fall within that category. And those are two reasons why it's inappropriately designated.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I I think really, you know, another issue here and really what the one, one that goes to the heart of the litigation you're involved with right now is that, you know, I, I think the more I've learned about this subject myself. You know, I realized I didn't really understand the effect that the CSA is having on a lot of businesses and states where marijuana might be legal. You know, and I, I know my colleague Ken Shea here has done a lot of research on this too, but, you know speaking with folks who walk into a dispensary for example in states where marijuana is legal you know this is just an example of it but i think people might scratch their heads and say you know why can't these folks take credit cards why don't they accept credit cards so if you could give the listeners maybe a little bit of background on how the csa might be hamstringing these businesses i think that'd be helpful
0: sure so because the csa is a criminal statute any business that facilitates a transaction involving one of these drugs on Schedule 1, for example, is violating that criminal statute and is at the threat of prosecution by the Department of Justice. Um, This is important because major institutions, uh, financial institutions, and and regular businesses are at risk of federal prosecution if they uh, do business with what are lawfully operating state regulated marijuana businesses and though they so they don't because the threat of prosecution to a bank like Bank of America or a mortgage lender is so substantial that they don't take any chance.
1: Right. And in, in the litigation that you're pursuing right now in Massachusetts, you know, it really seems like the plaintiffs in that case they really run the gamut here of, you know, farmers who might be growing marijuana all the way up to the consumption side of things. If you could give us a little bit of background about the plaintiffs that you're proceeding with in this litigation, that would be great too.
0: So so we have a several plaintiffs who represent different aspects of small businesses operating in Massachusetts and are otherwise lawful under Massachusetts law. Um, what, what we wanted to show was an American story of entrepreneurialism. And we think that our plaintiffs represent that. Um, we have a group that farms outdoors. Um, we have a, a, a distributor, a young African American entrepreneur who's been looking forward to working in the business for a decade um, and went to California to learn and, to, and take training on safety and on uh, the, the various chemical aspects of the drug. Uh, we have a very entrepreneurial woman who was a leader in the Colorado market um, and, and left that and decided to come to Massachusetts where she's grown a business to great success and great accolades locally as a leader. Uh, and we have a, a multi-state operator just to represent uh, a larger business um, that's involved in growth and distribution. And so we have all kinds of businesses that show um, the various entrepreneurs involved in this. Um, all of these businesses are lawfully licensed and operating within the state and, and with every intention to continue to do so. All of these businesses are negatively impacted by the discriminatory discriminatory treatment caused by the continued designation of marijuana as a criminal substance and, and, and the continued threat of enforcement.
1: So a really interesting and a really wide net of different interests there. You know, I, I think you know a lot of folks might not realize just the the swarm of folks who are who are really affected by the continuation of the CSA and its application to interstate marijuana trades. And you know, full disclosure, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, so I've certainly seen firsthand how this industry has developed there. Uh, you know, but as to this case you know, if you could talk about why this forum and why right now, I mean, it certainly made sense to me when I first read your complaint, you know, why you might've chosen this place to bring the case. But, you know, I think there's also an interesting interplay here when you think about conservative judges and, you know, why right now might be the time, you know, for example, I think the Supreme court might not be keen on the idea of marijuana legalization generally, but there's also a real state's rights broader 10th amendment issue kind of at play here too, right?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's not the 10th Amendment that we're attacking. It's the Commerce Clause and, and the, the balance between the federal government's limited ability to regulate interstate commerce, meaning everything that transfers between or operates between the states, and the ability of the federal government to regulate an interstate activity when it has an impact on a wholly intrastate commerce activity. Um, under the constitutional principles, the federal government is only allowed to, to regulate interstate commerce and is not allowed to regulate intrastate commerce. That is left to the states to regulate. The, the Supreme Court has on several occasions, dating back to the 1940s, uh, allowed a case to exist where uh, the federal government's regulation of an interstate activity had an impact on an intrastate activity um, based on a very narrow and limited exception. Um, Now, that case is repeated a few times over the last 80 years, um, most significantly and and most recently we would point out uh, against the medical marijuana industry in California in 2005 when the Supreme Court upheld the right of the federal government to shut down California's medical marijuana industry, even though uh, it was at the time uh, only sold to people who were licensed uh, in California. I believe even had to have a, a California uh, ID in order to be licensed at the time. Um, I wasn't a customer, so I don't know, but I think I vaguely recall that. But um, you know that case came out my first year in law school, and it was quite controversial at the time. Um, it was what I like to refer to as the last case in the war on drugs because they they went in and they seized uh, a grandmother's um, uh, home collection of, of pot plants in Oakland um, they prohibited a twelve year old with uh, epilepsy from from uh, getting um, some TFC drops or something that they needed and, and and some of the most sympathetic plaintiffs you've ever heard of in your life and the government right, right. literally threatened to put them in jail and or put them in jail now. Um, the argument that the federal government put forth that um, some of the judges who are still on the court today disagreed with, most notably Justice Thomas, who's a leader of the court's conservative ideology right now, um, strongly disagreed at the time and continues in, in things that he writes and dissents to think that that decision was incorrect. But the basis for the holding in the Reich v. case was that because it's inevitable, that the medical marijuana, which is sold legally interstate, will get into the flow of the black market for marijuana throughout the country. Um, and because the rationale behind shutting down the black market for marijuana is that the government's it, purpose and in Congress's intent behind the CSA's designation of marijuana is to eradicate all marijuana sales throughout the country. Because that purpose is rational and has it serves a legitimate government interest, it's therefore a lawful interference with intrastate commerce. Now, what we know is that the government did not actually shut down the medical marijuana practice in California. What we know is that the government may have had that rational and legitimate intent at the time. But since then, we know they haven't continued to exercise that policy. And that's the reason we've drafted a a complaint to explain that based on the government's actions, their policy is no longer to eradicate marijuana sales throughout the country.
1: Right, I I think that's definitely true, and we'll discuss the the government's response and motion to dismiss for your complaint in just a bit. But I I think that's that's definitely you know the the case, and you know I'm glad you pronounced Raish before I did because I was thinking about what the proper pronunciation would be there myself. I, I might not have
0: it right, but that's okay. Well,
1: we'll go, with race. we'll go with Raish. We'll go with Raish. That sounds good. So, um, but yeah, I I think you know on that point, you know the government's enforcement or lack thereof we've seen since 2005 and up through today too you know, I I think that's one of the factors you really point out as a reason for this to kind of be reconsidered by the courts. And, you know, I I don't know if you'd like to go into it a little bit deeper, but, you know, also your arguments that were made at the time of Raish about marijuana being this fungible crop in some ways, the same way that you might look at wheat or something else, and that's just not the case anymore. Another thing that, you know, I've learned in, in looking at your litigation is you know this whole concept of seed to sale, right? Where marijuana it really, you know, it, the genesis of whatever is sold in a state starts in that state the same way that it ends and is consumed in that state. So, if you could talk a little bit more about that too, and how that concept of these intrastate systems differs from what people might have as conceptions about things right now, I think that's also a really important point
0: here. It is the main reason that we brought the case in Massachusetts, and one of the reasons we like being able to show examples of the industry in Western Massachusetts where farming and other industry has left the state. But um, you, 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 you're right at the heart of the issue of our case. Um, and there are plenty of other states that have robust um, seed to sale um, tracking systems. But Massachusetts is, is, is what we would call uh, an exemplary model for legally and safe regulated products. Um, the, the idea of fungibility was something that was central to the holding in the Raish case um, because it was central to the holding of a case from the 1940s involving wheat and made it a very easy and narrow way for the Supreme Court to decide that if a product is the same, no, no matter where it's grown, then it can always be sold in interstate commerce, and we don't have to investigate that further. What we know today, for those of you who are consumers, is that products in every state are very different. Um, there are different types of products involving marijuana. Um, the, the types of products that are sold in one store in Western Mass may be very different than the types of products sold in Newton. Um, you know, And uh, we know that because those of you who are consumers, like to try new products and, and, and like, just like you'd like to try different kinds of wine, um, it's sort of like saying a Chardonnay is the same thing as a Cabernet. Um, we all know that's not true. Um, and, and, and those of you who have safely consumed these products interstate know that they're different, um, that, that they're California and the Florida and the Massachusetts product has different types of growing seasons uh, and different types of plants and different types of products. So, that, that, that's one important way to distinguish the prior cases. But more importantly, um, the fact that we we're able to sell this intrastate lawfully, and it's consumed lawfully, shows that it is a business that should be left to the states to regulate. And Massachusetts has, has very carefully licensed um, this product, was very slow to, to get their lawful market uh, from the time that the voters, uh, uh, you know, approved it to actually licensing it, I think it took like four years and that was because they wanted to ensure safety uh, and thorough regulation. And, and, and we think all of that is a model for the rest of the states who decide to follow uh, Colorado, California, Massachusetts and others or who, who decide not to.
1: Yeah, I I I think that's brilliant, and and honestly, you know, I having seen the rollout of the of this policy in Massachusetts, a, my perception of it as has is that it has been relatively seamless, and I think, you know, perhaps as a, as opposed to some other states who, who have tried the same thing. I think it certainly makes it a very attractive forum. And your point there, I think, about differing products and differing you know, strands or whatever it might be with marijuana. I think that's a really well taken point, too, and, and something that a lot of folks might not necessarily know coming into this discussion. But uh, I think now I'll turn this over to my colleague in D.C., Nathan Dean, to ask a few policy questions related to the cannabis trade as well.
2: Yeah, I know. So again, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. You know, like Justin was mentioning before, we're we're recording this on February 8th. And the reason why I highlight that is that the rumor mill in Washington, D.C. is pretty great right now that the White House could make an announcement on reschedulization uh, any day now. And knowing my luck, it may come just right after we record this uh, podcast today. However, the question I want to ask is, what does a world with marijuana as a Schedule three drug and not a Schedule one drug, look like and what are the biggest changes that the marketplace could experience and how would that decision impact your court case?
0: Well, it wouldn't have a benefit, i sorry, it wouldn't have an impact on our court case, though it would have a, a benefit to some of our clients. Um, and I can explain that. But what we're seeking is an injunction against the federal government's ability to police marijuana when it's sold lawfully state under the CSA as it's applied to marijuana. And so we would take away that police power, which would take away the threat, and therefore the federal government wouldn't be able to cause these businesses who are lawfully operating intrastate the harm that they cause them today. It doesn't. We don't touch on the ability to pr- prohibit interstate commerce, but simply as applied to these intrastate businesses to prohibit that. So. Schedule 3 would continue to have an impact on lawful intrastate businesses. Um, it would require them to get FDA approval for the products. Um, it would require them to operate within regulations that would have to be created by the FDA. Um, it would cause them um, to have to, to deal with a, a new regulator that's not currently regulating them, in addition to the state regulations that they're already complying with. And the only benefit, which it would be enormous, but the only benefit from that rescheduling as opposed to descheduling, which a lot of people in the industry advocate for, is that it would remove the, the discriminatory tax treatment under 280E which treats these businesses as illegal uh, drug dealers and taxes them based on their revenue. and doesn't allow them to take deductions. Uh, and so it's, it's a great penalty that other small businesses uh, don't face. Um, and that's why we, we call it a discriminatory treatment. Now, that would help these businesses a lot. For example, businesses can't deduct their legal fees, can't deduct the cost of lobbying, can't deduct their overhead. Um, I, I can't deduct the price of, of the, the cartridges and the price of the advertising. I mean, oh, anything. Just think about it. They, they, they can't get the benefit of that. And so they, they, they pay a tax on every dollar that comes in the door. No other business faces that that's otherwise lawfully interstate in our country. And yeah. so that would be enormous.
2: You know, I, I'm really glad you came up with that answer is because, you know, what we cover in terms of Bloomberg Intelligence, we cover the equities, a lot of the the marijuana equities. And, and I steal this term from one of my colleagues, but they have what I describe as having hot sauce on them, meaning they're very volatile. So anytime you have... Any action in Washington, for example, uh, a letter from several Senate Democrats asking for the White House to push deschedulization as opposed to reschedulization, these marijuana equities jump up like 15 to 20 percent. And then like when folks like I come in and say, well, just FYI, here's a process and so forth, these equities then drop down. But they're very volatile and hence the hot sauce. So I'm glad you laid out the 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 real time frame, or sorry, the, the process of reschedulization or the, the impact in terms of the 280E, because it is such a fundamental, important aspect of reschedulization to these companies, and the amount of relief is substantial. So we do think that reschedulization is going to happen. It may not happen this weekend, per the rumors that are happening here in Washington, but we do, certainly do think reschedulization to Schedule 3 is, is going to happen. Let
0: me add one more point. We believe that the treatment of these businesses under 280E is itself unconstitutional. Um, We have clients planning to uh, and who intend to seek reimbursement and a refund if we are successful in our litigation. It's been reported uh, in various places that that I've read that there's been billions of dollars in, in these, what we would call unlawful taxes levied against the industry. And so part of the uh, relief we would chase, because it wouldn't be part of our lawsuit, it would be subsequent administrative action that each of these businesses would take, could have an even greater impact on the businesses. Whereas with rescheduling, they're not going to be able to seek a refund uh, or any kind of reimbursement. And so we're hopeful that once we're successful in our case, whether it's with an injunction in the trial court, um, or an injunction being upheld in an appellate court, um, we're able to start to work with these businesses to, to get those taxes back, and that will have an, a huge impact on the industry.
2: So another question I wanted to ask you about, and I know this isn't directly tied to your court case, but you're one of the best experts in the country on this, is about the Safer Banking Act, You know, the bill that would allow financial institutions such as banks and credit unions and credit card companies service marijuana related businesses now i have a a low chance of success this year i'm giving it about a 30 percent chance of success just because we think the house financial services committee will block it if and when the senate were actually to take it up but i was wondering if you had any thoughts on what the marijuana business landscape could look like if the bill doesn't pass is it essential for growth and or how would you i don't want to use the term advice but how should a marijuana company think about this world if Safer Banking doesn't come in the next year or two?
0: Well, unfortunately, the same way they've been thinking about it for the last five years, depending on what state you're on. It's really how this case came to me. Um, Five years ago, I I started thinking about it with my partner, David Boyes. And my father, in the last two years, brought in a group of clients, and we started thinking about it again. Because five years ago, when I started working in this industry, which came just totally out of happen circumstance where I was um, representing a a company and someone left from a private equity company to join one of these cannabis companies and asked for help with a corporate negotiation. And I'm a litigator. So I said, well, I'm going to find you a top New York corporate lawyer. And I called a couple of friends from law school, all who were at top New York law firms that had cannabis practices. And i said can you help negotiate this license it's it's a big deal for this company and they said sure and then the next day i got a phone call and said well they're in america we only are allowed to help canadian companies and i said what and this happened three or four times in a row so i said well okay i'm going to give up on that i'm just going to do it myself and i helped this company negotiate a license it was a lot of fun but um, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that that's what had to happen. And, and you know, I, I, when I got to know the, the principals at that company, they they were telling me, um, you know, because I invested in one of the companies and they said, it's right around the corner. Everything is right around the corner. Legalization is coming. Safe banking is coming. And and everything has been coming right around the corner for about seven years. And so when these the, the when a group approached us. Um, or when we've had discussions with various people in the industry in the last year and a half they said we can't rely on that anymore um, and, and we even know that even with these important thoughtful steps that the government is taking which I would point out undermine the, the policy rationale to eradicate marijuana throughout the country just to revisit that but but with these important states which we encourage there's still not going to be the same kind of relief that descheduling or the relief that our lawsuit, if, if the injunction is issued, w- would provide the industry, which would be complete relief for lawful intrastate businesses from federal oversight. And so um, we think that the, the lawsuit is necessary because these steps are interim steps and may or may not happen. We also think, given the ideology and, and, and the history of what the current Speaker of the House has said about the marijuana industry, which he's completely against, really eliminates any chance of safe banking success in, in my subjective view.
2: Yeah, I, I tend to agree as well. I mean, and just for the folks who are listening, if we do have any marijuana equity investors, you know, we at BI have three major catalysts that we think these hot sauce stocks, if you will, could show some movement. The first is the announcement when they go to schedule three as opposed to schedule one, which I think can come in the next few months. Secondly, there will be a proposal as part of that that will then have to go through the proposal comment period. So you may have some catalysts and see some positive headlines there. And then when it comes to the Safer Banking Act, I do think Senator Schumer is going to try and get this to a full vote. He loves doing stuff around April 20th for this. So don't be surprised (laughs) if you see a a positive catalyst there. But again, thank you, Josh, for the time. And I'm going to kick it back to Justin. My pleasure.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so, uh, you know, turning back to the case for just a moment, Josh, you know, I, I, sh- I should mention for listeners out there who probably want to keep an eye on this, that the case is captioned as Canada provisions at all versus the United States. It's filed in the Western District of Massachusetts. But Josh, I was really interested by the government's dismiss- dismissal bid on the case, too, and would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, I- I've heard from a few people in discussing the case that, you know, their concern is that maybe there's a slippery slope argument here right well if the government you know says hey you know we're not going to apply the csa to marijuana or if the if the csa is unconstitutional what happens next with other perhaps harder drugs right we're seeing things like psilocybin or magic mushrooms legalized in states like oregon and, and colorado You know, so why doesn't that kind of shake that up? And, you know, is that, is the CSA necessary when states are already kind of regulating those harder drugs? How does that all kind of mix together with this slippery slope kind of argument?
0: Sure. So our lawsuit is narrowly tailored at the application of the CSA to police marijuana as a Schedule I drug and and not at the CSA itself. We're not seeking to challenge the statute. As on its face. Um, And what we are doing, and what the government has already done for us, helpfully, is distinguish marijuana from these other drugs. Now, I don't really see any validity to a slippery slope argument. It wasn't really in the motion to dismiss. They may bring it up at summary judgment. You know, in a motion to dismiss, they're required to, the judge is required to to look at the facts as pled as true. And the only argument. To dismiss the cases, even if the facts are taken as true, you you objectively can't meet uh, the necessary standards for potentially succeeding on your claim. There's, it's not plausible that you could succeed under the Iqbal standard. Now, they've taken some some interesting and clever ways to attack us, but um, you know, raising factual issues in response to um, on a motion to dismiss in response to a complaint doesn't work and shouldn't work. Um, right. So slippery slope type arguments don't work. Talking about other states don't work. They have to challenge what we've pled. Right. And we right. All, we, we all we've 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 made a, a very clear case as to why the, the, the policy is no longer consistent with what the previous policy was. In fact, there is no consistency to the policy at all. And therefore, it's no longer rational. And therefore, it's not legitimate. And therefore, it doesn't meet the Supreme Court's test.
1: Right. Makes sense. And I think, you know, speaking of the the way that they have decided to attack your lawsuit, you know, I found it really striking how they took this position that you know well banks might not want to do business with a marijuana you know retailer or a marijuana grower, and you know while all of these you know organizations might not want to do any business with with folks in the cannabis trade, that's really a third party decision, and not not the CSA that's mandating that, so that this is the wrong lawsuit with the wrong defendant. How do you kind of approach that argument by the government there?
0: Oh, it's clever um, the 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 truth, though, as we've pled in our complaint. And as we'll demonstrate in our opposition, is that it's the threat of prosecution from the federal government that is causing these businesses not to do business. It's what's preventing our clients from obtaining loans, mortgages, insurance policies in the same way that everybody else does. And while they're able to operate, they're they're discriminated against as a direct result of the federal government's threat of prosecution.
1: Right, right. And I'm, I'm sure you would agree with the notion, too, that, you know, even, even if the government hasn't necessarily taken steps to enforce provisions of the CSA in recent years, that that threat still exists, right? I think that's exactly, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I think that, that really goes to the heart of it. I think it's it's a tough argument to say in many ways that, well, you know, this could happen, you know, this could not happen, but because it's not happening, there's, there's really not, not a claim to be made. And it seems like that's kind of how it's been wrapped and presented with a bow in the, in the motion to dismiss. So, yeah, I, if there's anything else from the, the motion to dismiss that you kind of want to comment on, you know, please feel free. But I think those two two issues really stood out to me on my end.
0: No, we, we expected them to file a motion to dismiss. We expect to prevail on the motion to dismiss. Um, the, the the argument uh, that our clients are injured is well demonstrated in the complaint. And, and it's a fact that's well known in the industry. Um, it's also true that if the federal government's power to police the industry was removed, that those impediments wouldn't exist anymore. Um, and, and, and you know, This is a case that's appropriate for summary judgment, where the government can make its case for eradication in a clear way. I think they're going to have trouble doing that, in particular in light of, for example, what the Biden administration has done, which is inconsistent with the Bush administration's policy. And they're going to have to explain that. But that's a factual issue to introduce through expert testimony or citing to uh, enforcement or, or giving examples as to why there is a rational policy. Justice Thomas doesn't think there is. He's called it half in, half out. Um, and and because it has a discriminatory impact, you know, th- th- it's going to be scrutinized by, by the, the district court trial judge. And, and we look forward to having that fight on the merits.
1: Right. And I think I think talking about that fight and, you know, that, that kind of leads into the next question, too, which is, you know, what is the, the million dollar question or maybe the multi million dollar question in this case? But but, Josh, what do you see for, as the, the end goal for this litigation? Do you, does this move up to the First Circuit? Does this maybe move to the Supreme Court? And, you know, what's the goal and what do you think the timeline looks like on something like that, too?
0: Well, we hope to win an injunction in, you know, based based on what I would expect to be a summary judgment argument um, from the district court. And that could happen as soon as this year, um, depending on timing and, and how the motion to dismiss is handled, but it should be fully briefed by April and we could have a hearing on four twenty for, 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 <laughs> uh, for all, for all, for all purposes. But, um, I don't even know if it's a, a Monday or a Tuesday or a Saturday. So, but I, I should have looked at that example. before we spoke, but
1: yeah, there, would, there would be a good date for it. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: but, but so, so, um, you know, we, we would like to get to the merits as quickly as possible because we assume that if we prevail, the, the federal government would, will continue to appeal on the basis of the race decision. So, um, uh, you know, I, we expect to be in the First Circuit either way uh, with an appeal. And then, you know, the whether the federal government, sorry, whether the Supreme Court were to take an appeal from the First Circuit because we were victorious and in the, in the, the government is appealing it or declined to... Um, You know, traditionally, there's less than 7% of the cases, may even be less now, um, but that was true 10 years ago, um, that that are accepted by the Supreme Court. Obviously, very political cases um, that challenge federal government's policy are some of the cases that fall, that that have a higher chance of succeeding. We know that the Supreme Court would likely be quite interested in this case because of the um, majority of conservatives and the fact that it... One of them is has been a dissenter in the previous cases consistently.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, but but, you know, we, we would be very happy to win an injunction in the trial court and for the federal government to realize that that's consistent with its current policy. And, you know, the case can be over there as far as we're concerned. But right. I have right. no expectation for that to happen. Right,
1: right. Like, likely not, likely not, but there's something to be said for wishful thinking there. Um, Josh, so as we start closing a little bit, you know, in grand votes and verdict tradition, I've got to ask you now, the same question we've really posed to all of our guests that we've had on. And, and that is, if you were stranded on a desert island, what, what are three pieces of music that you want to have along with you?
0: Well, I love that question. And, and, and because I have, um, an eclectic taste of music i'm going to give you three examples one would be um outcasts album at aliens uh, which was really one of the best albums in the 1990s um, the second would be the red hot chili peppers californication uh, which got me personally back into rock and roll after That's a
1: good one a decade yeah. of
0: listening to rap
1: absolutely and then
0: i wanted to go with a cello piece because i was a cellist as a kid but i thought I never get tired of uh, uh, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. I think you can just listen to that almost endlessly and always find something new to hear. Very true. Uh, so that, those would be my choices. That,
1: that That's great. And I've got to say, you know, mentioning Outcast that brings me back, not to date myself, but that brings me back to, uh, you know, college spring break for sure. And ironically, probably in Jamaica as well. So I'm glad you mentioned it. And,
2: and just to add that our colleague Elliot Stein has a Spotify where he will put your... Uh, your choices into a Spotify uh, playlist, so we will. Uh, well, maybe one sure. you can shoot that over to me. I would, yep, I would love sounds to good.
1: A- absolutely. Uh, so, Josh, you know, thanks again for for joining us today. I think this is really fascinating litigation. We appreciate the time you know, you, you've taken to discuss it here. You know, we'll we'll certainly be watching the case to see how it plays out. It's absolutely unique. There's no question about that. And I think it raises a lot of issues that are really ripe for reconsideration by the court. So you know, thanks again. Thanks to Nathan Dean for joining us with some really insightful views, as always, from what's happening on the cannabis scene in D.C. And last but certainly not least, thank you to the listener for tuning in. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at B.I. Go. And with that, I'm Justin Teresi signing off. This was Votes and Verdicts.